All right, good morning. We're going to get started. 6.01, so I want to get rolling. Glad your brothers are up and here, ready to roll. So um, we're going to look at the book of Psalms today, hopefully cover uh, really the entirety of the Psalter today, if I do what I plan to do. Um, I just I will try to remind you of a couple things as we as we get into this altar. We we started really introducing this whole section of scripture called the writings, which has a large subsection in it called the wisdom literature, um, to which Psalms doesn't properly belong to the wisdom literature, but does to the writings. Um, Psalms being the first book of the wisdom literature, uh, or excuse me, of the writings section. And so, introduced you to that last week, and we're going to really jump into it. And hopefully, cover the altar today. So let me pray. Father, we're thankful for uh, this morning. We're thankful that your mercies are new every morning. We're thankful that we were given life and breath today, that we have the privilege of knowing your son, of looking to him and trusting him. We're thankful for your word. We pray that your spirit would be at work as we look at your word together to give us clarity, uh, to Teach us the truth, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I, just as a reminder, as every time we look, I keep bringing you guys back to this. What were the three promises that were made to Abraham? Does anybody remember when God comes to Abraham? And if you remember, I've put that in context a, a bunch of times. Genesis 12 um, and following does not exist on its own. There's this whole problem of what's happened to the world in Genesis 1 through 11. God created all things. Uh, man sinned. Things spun out of control. And then in Genesis 12, we start to see the unfolding of this promise we hear about in Genesis 3 of the seed of the woman who's coming, and he's going to come through Abraham and set all things right, if you will. And in the context of that, Abraham's promised three things. You guys remember what they are? Oh, there you go, Clayton, you answered all three of them. So land, um, seed, and blessing, namely that he's going to be a blessing to the nations. All right, so it's land, seed, and blessing. Seed being his offspring, um, the land being the promised land, and that they would be a blessing to the nations. Uh, when he makes this promise, uh, we, we start to see this get uh, crystallized. As we go down the road um, from Abraham to Judah to the house of David. By the time we're at the Psalter, we know about the promises made to David. That the Messiah, this seed, who would be a blessing to all nations, would come through um, the house of David. would be his son, sit on the Messianic throne. These these promises made, um, I, I submitted last week, are really summed up. In the Psalter, uh, with the major theme about the Psalter being about the king and his kingdom. Um, so, king and his kingdom, which you can see kingdom, land, right? Seed is answered in the king. And the king and his kingdom would obviously be a blessing to all nations. Um, and so, it, as we look at the Psalms, we really look at a... a five books that are arranged to teach us about the king and his kingdom, to, to learn how to sing and pray and live the Christian life in light of that. The Psalms cover a period of history that is nearly 1,000 years of writing. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, Psalm 90, if you look there quickly, if you will, turn to Psalm 90. We'll see a, a mark of this. And look at uh, the superscript. A lot of people don't know this, but that superscript, not the thing that probably, did yours say like book four, that's fine, and then it says from everlasting to everlasting or some kind of subtitle like that. You guys have that kind of a subtitle or something like that's like in bold print. Okay, some of your Bibles have like a bold print. That's not part of the original text. But when you look just below that, 
where every word starts with a capital, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. You guys all have that. You should have that because that is part of the original text. That's actually the, part of the inspired and errant text of the Psalter. When you see those sub, uh, superscripts like that, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So who wrote this psalm? Moses. Okay, This is a psalm written by Moses, circa 1400 B.C. Okay, I, I say 1400 B.C. We're not entirely sure, um, but it's somewhere in that range. Circa 1400 B.C. Um, and then look at Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Now Psalm 137, what is, how does it start off? By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Okay. Does anybody remember when um, Babylon came in and wiped out Judah? Remember the northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken captive by Assyria, and then the southern kingdom of Judah is taken captive? That's happening in um, the, the 600, about 607 to 590, 580-something B.C. Then they're captive, they're taken off, and this, this particular psalm could be as late as 400 B.C. We're not, again, we're not really sure. But the point is, somewhere between 400 B.C. and 1400 B.C., or 1500 B.C. and 500 B.C., um, these psalms are composed. So this is a composed book, which means that you have multiple authors And then you have some editors or editor who puts all of these psalms together in this five-book Psalter, right? And that's how Christ receives it, and Christ receives it in that order and in in this format that we have it in, and and he sees sees it as the inerrant word of God. So you might say, well, we don't even know who edited and compiled it ultimately, Um, but we do know who many of the authors are, that we don't know who all the authors are. What we do know is that Christ receives it as God's word, and he receives it in this form. We know it, he receives it in this form because he quotes from both the Hebrew Bible and from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, both of which would have come in this form. Um, so there are multiple authors. Um, there, don't you love it when you're typing and you don't finish the parentheses, you don't close it. Everything after etc. does not, be, uh, you know, does not belong in parentheses, uh, you know, in there. But David, Asaph, Moses, Solomon, sons of Korah, Agur, King Lemuel, these are all authors that are named. Now, with that said, I want to be really careful about that. Um, there's some question of whether a psalm is necessarily authored because it says a psalm of so-and-so. It's also possible that that psalm could be about that person. So one that, that would come up um, would be the Psalm of Solomon. Um, it says of Solomon. There's a question as to whether Solomon wrote it or it's written about him. The reason is, is that the end of that Psalm, it says this concludes the Psalms of David. And so is this written by Solomon or is this written about Solomon? And scholars go back and forth. The, the point I'm trying to make is not, let's resolve that today, but, but the fact that there's multiple authors in the Psalms. The three main genres, uh, genres of, the pra- of the praise we find in the Psalms, well, let me, maybe I should say this. You know, almost all of the Old Testament is either prose or praise. Prose, I mean like you have these narrative sections, these sections of law, this kind of writing. And then you have, in the Psalter, praise. It's, it's music. It's to be sung, right? And it's praising the Lord. Um, in that genre of praise, you have like three sub-genres. It's the type of literature that they are. You have laments. You guys know what a lament is? We don't, we don't do a lot of lamenting in our culture, but psalms um, are lament, thanksgiving, and hymns. Um, even our Thanksgiving psalms have some lament, right? So 
Uh, lament, lament moves from please due to trouble. So we start off saying, I'm in some kind of trouble and I'm lamenting that and I'm pleading with God due to that trouble for, to praise for who God is. That's how a lament tends to move. So I start off with saying, Lord, I'm troubled. Are you there? Do you care? Are you going to rescue me? Um, and then I turn to, you're a great God. You've always been merciful. You've always been faithful. You, you guys follow me on that? You see that kind of language in the Psalter? Um, thanksgiving are songs of thanksgiving that recount some past trouble. So it, it, what it does is it says, here's, some, thank you. here's something that happened in the past, right? Here's some past trouble. Um, here's a cry for, the cry for help we gave for that past trouble. It's like telling the historical story of our trouble. I was in trouble. I cried for help. Here's the story of that. You delivered us, and I'm expressing gratitude. You guys have seen those kind of psalms. Back in the day, during Moses' era, we were in this problem, right? We cried out to you. You came in and saved us. We give you thanks. There are those kind of psalms. It's just a recounting of God's past deeds to Israel for which they're thankful. Uh, Then we have the hymns. So when... Paul says sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. He doesn't mean hymns that are written. You know, there's going to be this set of songs written in the 16th, 17th, 18th century that that are going to be in a hymnal. It's not what he's referring to. He's referring to the psalms that are hymns. Um, So hymns open with praise for God for the fact that all is well. That's how they open. They start off praising God for the fact that all is well. They praise him for his acts and redemptive history. Um, so, you know, most of the laments are personal. There's some that are corporate. Well, I don't know if most. Lots of them are personal. Lots of the Thanksgiving psalms can tend, or, um, songs can tend to be personal. Um, I'm, you know, the hymns tend to be much more corporate. Thank you for what you did in redemptive history, the way you brought Israel out of Egypt, that kind of a thing. Um, what you may not realize is, um, well, maybe before I move here, what you may not realize is that the majority of the Psalter is lament. The first half, and I'll emphasize this as we go on, the first half of the Psalms, or the first, well, the first half is not right. The front end of the Psalms, majority of which is lament, starts with like lament and sorrow. The, the vast majority of it's lament and sorrow. It moves to praise or glory it's, it's got an interesting pattern of moving from suffering to glory. The whole of the Psalter does. Um, I don't think that's unintentional. But it, it's heavy in lament, the Psalms. The if you take 150 Psalms, heavy in lament. That's something that's very foreign to our culture. We don't even like to talk about funerals anymore. Like you go to a, you know, historically someone dies, you think, Death is horrible. We lost that person. We should mourn. Now we're like, no, we're going to have a celebration of life. Because we just can't even cope with mourning. Like, let's face the obvious. I don't, I, I'm just going to tell you guys, if you die and I'm asked to do your funeral, there will be no celebration of life happening. There will be a mourning of death happening. Because I'm not going to stand in front of your dead body and pretend like this is the time to be happy. Because it's not. It's delusional as a culture to stare at death, our enemy, and think this is a time to rejoice in some way. Um, It's not, right? It's horrible. We all know it when someone dies, but we're so afraid to talk about it and to mourn, to deal with the reality of it. Um, So when when y'all pass, if I'm there, I hope not because most of you are younger than me, (laughs) Um, but we're going to mourn, right? Uh, you know, so anyway, that's a good thing. You need to, you need to grieve. Death is terrible. Um, and it seems to me that, that the Psalms teach us that, what it means to lament, to grieve, something we tend to hide from now. Um, all right, how do we read the Psalms? Man, my notes up here probably aren't entirely helpful for you out there, right? Sorry, um, trying to put everything on one slide. I want to talk about reading them a bit. Um, we, we read them Christologically. What do I mean when I say that? Anybody? If we're going to read the Psalms, I'm saying we need to read them Christologically. Any, any guesses to what I mean? 
Yes, sir. Okay, so somehow looking upon Christ in the reading. Good. That's close enough, Harry. I know it's early, everybody. So um, the king who is ultimately Christ. That, I told you the, the Psalms about the king and his kingdom. And the king is ultimately the Christ. He's the federal head of, of his people. And everything about David is pointing to him. Thus we sing psalms with him. Psalms are most often in the mouth of David. Psalms are most often in the mouth of David. You guys know that. He's the main psalm writer. They're most often in the mouth of David as a type of the one who's to come. David is a type of the Christ to come, the greater king, his son who's coming. And they're most often in his mouth that way. So look at Psalm 16. Just so you know, I'm not making up the fact that we ought to read them this way. I'll give you an example. I could multiply lots of examples, but I'm just going to give you one. Um, with regard to reading this, Psalm 16. And look at verse 9. Now, well, let, before I do, look up at the top. What's the superscript tell you this psalm is by? It's a mictum. We're not really sure what a mictum is. By the way, it's probably some kind of liturgical term. It tells us something about how it's to be played or sung. But, but what's a, it's a mictum of who? David. All right, so David is singing this psalm. Now look at verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. In other words, you're not going to abandon me to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. You're not going to let my body become corrupted in the grave. You made known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So let me ask you guys a question. We're singing this psalm. We look at the sub superscript and we say, and, I, and singing psalms needs to be done more. But we're singing the psalm as a church now, let's say. We're singing the psalm, it's a, it's a victim of David. And we sing the line, um, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. Um, does, has David's body seen corruption in the grave? So what's the problem with singing the psalm? Well, no, not what's the answer to the problem? What's the problem? How could it possibly be ultimately talking about David? If so, it's not true. Right? Peter recognizes that. And so the solution is it's typological. It's pointing to Christ. So look at Acts chapter 2. You'll see Peter's realization of this. Acts chapter 2. You're going to go back and forth some this morning, by the way, from the Psalter to the New Testament. Now, look at verse 25. Peter's preaching about the Christ. You guys remember that? His death and resurrection. And after preaching about his resurrection, he's crucified, he's resurrected. Look at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. You guys see that? Now, look at verse 25. For David says concerning him... Now he's going to quote from Psalm 16. Concerning who? David says concerning Christ, the resurrected Christ. So now I want you to pay attention. Who does Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell us is singing ultimately uh, that Psalm 16 is being sung about? Christ. Right? So look what he says. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwells, dwell in hope, will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy ones see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, this is Peter now talking. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He is, his body is in Sheol. It's seeing corruption. 
So what does he go on to say? Being therefore a prophet, see, David was a prophet. Did you know that? He's prophetic in the Psalter, not just a king, but even functioning prophetically. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with, him, with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So did David know he was singing in the place of the Christ? Yeah. Uh, Or Peter's a liar and let's just wrap it up and go get breakfast now. You understand the problem? If David didn't know that he was singing in the place of Christ as a type of the Christ, and that that psalm was about the Christ, if David didn't know that, then Peter, the apostle at Pentecost, who preaches the resurrection of Christ, is a liar. And we just call the whole Christianity a sham. Right? Yes, sir. Depends on the psalm. That takes a little bit of work. Yep, yep. So I'm gonna t- I'm gonna g- let me give you other examples and you'll see. Um, I want to say, second, read the psalms eschatologically. Now, big term. I could also say redemptive historically, another big term. And you say, what does that mean? When, when you talk about, when we think about eschatology, Eschatology. You guys heard eschatology before? Okay, eschaton is the end in Greek. It just means the last things. Eschatologically is read them with the last things in mind. In other words, what I mean is understand that there's a story that's unfolding, and so you're reading that story as moving toward its proper end, right? That proper end starts when we're reading Genesis 1 and 2. You can read Genesis 1 eschatologically, what I mean by that is you understand God is putting the world in place and there's a proper end to all of this, right? There's a direction this story's moving and it's going to be summed up. You know that every time you open a story and start reading it, right? You open a novel, you're going to read a story, you know it's moving to an end, correct? So is the Bible. What I'm saying is read it with that in mind that it's moving in a direction and it's moving in a direction toward the eschaton, that coming day of the new heavens and the new earth, that day when the Messiah comes, that day when Paul will refer to as in the fullness of time God sent forth his son, right? Galatians 4. Notice that language Paul uses, in the fullness of time. They're waiting for this day. And so you're reading it with the sense that, I'm also reading this altar going, there's a day coming. So why do I say that? Look at Psalm 132. I'll give you a different example. This one Keaton, if you will, would be about Christ, not coming from the mouth of Christ. So I'm going to give you an example of that. Talking about his coming. Psalm 132. This is a song of ascents. This is as Israel ascends back to her home. Look at verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Okay, do you hear the oath? Okay, so the Psalter is telling you the Lord swore to David a sure oath. The problem at this point is David's dead, Solomon's dead, the kings have become wicked, Israel's been exiled. You guys understand the problem? So where's the son of David who's sitting on the throne who comes from his body? You guys understand the tension? God's made a sure oath. David, your son will sit on the throne forever. Okay? David's sons largely are dead. We don't have any godly ones we want to follow. There's no king in Israel. And the psalm is singing, saying, the, the psalmists are singing what? God sworn a sure oath. We're still believing it. Okay, now look at what it goes down to verse 17. There I will make a horn. He's going to... There I will make a horn to sprout for David. A horn of salvation. In fact, to sprout for David. 
I have prepared a lamp for my who? Anointed. The anointed is the Messiah. That's the same word. Okay? For my anointed, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Now, what's the Lord going to do? He's going to do what? He's going he's to give a horn for David. He is going to prepare a lamp for the anointed. All right, look at Luke chapter 1. Yes, sir. What do you think it is? It, 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 it's having to do with an announcement of, of some big event, right? God's provision in some big event being announced um, that's going to provide for the people what they've been waiting for. So look, look at Luke 1 and verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, by the way, Zechariah is um, his father being John the Baptist's father. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, now here he's going to prophesy by the Holy Spirit. Zechariah is a New Testament prophet. Since you read about the prophets in the New Testament, who are they? The apostles and the prophets? Well, Zechariah here is being a New Testament prophet, okay? Um, He's also a priest, interestingly enough, but... Um, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So they pick up that language. Christ has been born, John, or is, is Christ, sorry, it, Christ is coming. If you guys remember the scene in Luke. John the Baptist is coming. He's going to be the one who's the way shower who points to Christ. You guys remember that? Okay. And then, um, and Zacharias received that prophecy. Now, uh, Elizabeth has run into Mary, who's pregnant with the Christ. And the baby leaps for joy. Mary's Magnificat happens. They know the Messiah is coming through Mary. And then John the Baptist is born and Zechariah prophesies. And he picks up that language from Psalm 132 and says, it's about this baby that's coming in Mary, that my son's going to point to, right? Um, It's about him. In other words, what I mean is you're reading it eschatologically. When Christ comes into the world, the eschaton has come. So, hey, has the end come? Yes. How do I know that? Because Jesus has come, right? Um, He's come. So we're in a new creation. Now, again, I'm going to come back to the already and not yet, and keep pressing on that. It's already a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. I'm just going to keep reminding you of that, right? Okay? It's already here, and it's not yet here because it hasn't been fulfilled yet, right? In its fullness. It hasn't been fu- it's been fulfilled in part, inauguration, but not in fullness, consummation. Okay? Um, all right. So we want to read them Christologically. We want to read them eschatologically or redemptive historically, however you want to put that, that, seeing as the unfolding of redemptive history. We want to read them prosopologically. Now, this is one probably not, none of you have heard um, before. Has anybody heard the term prosopological? Maybe I've said it in here before. Anybody else heard it? Okay, so what does prosopological mean? This is a reading of Scripture that was lost. I'm just going to tell you, it's a, it's, an, it's a way of reading Scripture that was lost for centuries in the modern era. In the modern era. Um, it, was the, it was a typical way of reading certain passages of Scripture um, in the ancient, medieval, early Reformation era, but it's been lost in the modern era. Um, sadly, it's been lost. Um, it is really a way of reading Scripture that becomes part of the basis for doctrines like the Trinity or Jesus is God and man. Now, what I mean by that is not that modern exegetes or modern teachers of hermeneutics are denying that Jesus is, I mean, that Jesus is God or that, that God is triune. I don't mean that, right? 
they get the right answer. Most modern commentators I read don't even deal with prosopological exegesis, which bothers me, um, because they exegete passages of Scripture. In other words, they interpret passages of Scripture. They say this is what they mean, but they, when we come to a prosopological passage, which I'm going to explain to you in a minute, they miss it. They miss it. They don't interpret it properly. And I think, um, but at the end they'll say, well, this, God is triune. This doesn't have anything to do with that really, but he's triune. And I just keep thinking, well, brother, like you have the right answer, but when you show your math, the math doesn't add up, right? And if that keeps getting passed down to your disciples, soon enough, they're going to have the wrong answer because they're going to push the math to its logical conclusion and they're going to realize, oh, triunity is nuts, nonsense, not biblically supported. That's what happens, right? You have the right answer, wrong math. To get there, you teach that bad math to someone else, eventually they're going to say, if I use this way of doing it, I can't end up with that answer you have. Um, so we'll just call the, the modern form of exegesis that's been present for the last couple centuries, particularly the last century, the last few centuries, we'll just call it something akin to um, common core math, right, as far as Bible is concerned. So he, we need to read them prosopologically. This is to read them in a person-centered way. When we say prosopon, that's just a Greek word for um, person. Prosopon is person. So to read them prosopologically is to read them in a person-centered way. What does that mean? Um, it is to understand that the psalmist may speak in the person of the Son or may speak in the person of the Father. Um, so I want to give you an example. Look at Psalm 110. Look at Psalm 110. I'm going to give you two examples just to make this point. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord. Okay. Um, now, this is interesting because the first word, Lord, is all caps. The second is not. If you notice that, um, this is Yahweh says to my Adonai. Now, how would this have been sung in a Hebrew audience? Anybody know? How would, what would you have heard? Adonai says to my Adonai. Because when you saw Yahweh, you read Adonai. Right? Um, so they're singing this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, who is this a psalm of? The psalm of David. Now, what people say in the modern era is, this is a, a statement about the Davidic king. Yahweh is saying to the Davidic king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David is really prophesying about his Lord, i.e. by his Lord, he means his king or the coming um, son of David who will be the Messiah who sits on the throne in Israel. And so modern interpreters will say, um, well, when does this come to be? Well, maybe it comes to be um, in some sense at his incarnation. Here he comes. Maybe it comes to be at his resurrection. Maybe it comes to be at his ascension. Now he sits down at the right hand of God, and that's when this psalm comes to be. Okay? Because um, this isn't actually about... Um, th this, this is just a prophecy about the coming Christ and his messianic rule. And that's all it is. Right? And it's, so they're reading it in a Christ-centered way or a... Or a redemptive historical way, right? Seeing it unfold and fulfilled in Christ, that's a good instinct. They, it's a necessary instinct, by the way, because the New Testament tells us that Psalm 110 is about the Christ. You guys follow me on that? Okay, it tells us that. It's quite clear. Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 are quoted uh, pretty much more than anything else. It tells us that. Now, um, look forward to... Um, <clears throat> 
Let, let's just look at Mark, Mark chapter 12. I could pick a number of Psalms. My question is, is this merely about the Christ? Is this merely Christological, something Christ is singing? Or is it merely redemptive, historical, or eschatological, pointing forward to the Christ? Or is it something more? So look at Mark um, chapter 12. And I'm contending this is actually something more than that. Um, Chapter 12, and look at verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, so here's Jesus, he's going to go on the offensive. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Okay, you hear the question? How can they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So you understand the first problem. How, how can the scribes, who are the scribes, right? These are teachers of the law. They're guys that write scripture. They're not the Pharisees, a different group, but they're, they're teachers of the law. They're the guys, they're, they're, they're copying scripture. They're teaching scripture. How can they say that uh, the Christ is the son of David? How could he be David's son? If David and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. What's the problem of calling him his son? If David's calling him Lord, he's before him. That's what Jesus is saying. Remember Psalm 110, what did he say? The Lord said to who? My Lord. And now he's hearing a statement that the Lord is making to his Lord. What's the statement that the Lord is making to his Lord? The statement the Lord, Yahweh, is making to David's Lord, the Christ. What's what's the statement being made? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he's saying, how, how, how could he be talking about his son? In other words, how could he be talking about the one who comes after him when he's talking in the past tense, by the way, in the Septuagint, the LXX, says, the Lord says to my Lord, is actually in the aorist, the, the Lord said to my Lord. And then he tells us what he said in the past, in some sense, using the past tense. How could he be doing that if he's talking about his own son? Now, how did the early church answer this question? How did the medievals answer this question? How did the early reformers answer this question? Largely, they say, well, here's what's happening. David, by the Spirit, is recording for us, if you will, in the psalm, a conversation, if you will, for lack of a better term, between the Father and the Son. He's telling you what the Father is saying to the Son in eternity. The promise he's making to him in eternity. Now, Psalm 110 is used in several other instances, I think, that continue to make that point, and for which I don't have time to demonstrate definitively, though go listen to my early chapter sermons in Hebrews. I spend a lot more time on that in the first couple of chapters of Hebrews when I preach through that. But um, let me give you another example of this. Look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 um, are constantly coming up in the, in the letter to the Hebrew uh, church. And so, you know, I think the letter to Hebrews might, might actually just be a whole sermon on Psalm 110, arguably. But I want to look at Psalm 2 just to give you another example of this. You, you remember this psalm. I told you Psalm 1 and 2 are the doorway or the gateway into the Psalter. Psalm 1 is giving you a general theme. This is about what it means to live the blessed life, if you will, or to be the blessed man. Um, psalm 2 telling you that the blessed man really is coming in the Son, right? In the Messianic King. Now notice um, what happens. This is a psalm of David I will tell of the decree. I will tell of the decree. 
The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay, so now we have to stop. David's writing, I, so what would our normal reading of this be? Who's the I? David will tell the decree, the Lord, Yahweh, said to me, who's the me? David, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Okay? Now, is it, and, and we, on what day was David begotten as his son? Well, so here's what moderns generally do. They say, well, um, Luther says maybe this is the incarnation. Today, I have begotten you. Luther, it's not all Luther says about it, but it's one thing he says. Moderns will say, well, He's the begotten son at the incarnation. He's the begotten son at the resurrection because this passage does come up in resurrection contexts. Psalm 110 largely comes up in ascension contexts. Psalm 2 largely comes up in resurrection contexts. And they say, well, this is about the resurrection. And that's it. He's, he becomes the son at the resurrection. For years, John MacArthur taught. Um, it's in both his Hebrews commentary and his Romans commentary. He taught that uh, the second person of the Trinity was not the Son until the Incarnation. Then he became the Son for the first time. Um, he was called out for heresy on that in the 1990s. He repented of it, and his commentaries are subsequently being revised. Um, though, So if you have his older commentary, there's a new Romans one coming, and a new Hebrews one coming, fixing his past heresy. Um, and that's what it was. That's why he publicly repented of it and as having those changed. But that's quite um, popular out there in modern circles um, to make these sorts of claims. Uh, what's happening here in this text? What about the word today? Today sounds temporal, does it not? Today I've begotten you. Um, it sure seems like if this is David singing... If I'm just going to be, so I'm going to use it, this is how MacArthur got to his error, okay? If I'm going to be grammatical and historical and literal, then this has to be about David, right? Or David's son, okay? Um, best case. Typologically of the Christ, though, MacArthur wouldn't have used typology. That's a different issue because dispensationalists don't believe in typology, so they wouldn't have used it. But... But this is pointing somehow to his greater son, right? You guys understand how if I'm being literal and grammatical and historical, that's what it would be about. You following me on that so far? Okay. Um, let me point out a couple of issues first. Just, just on the use of the word today, just to overcome that objection, look at Isaiah 43. Keep your hand there, Isaiah 43. And look at verse 13. Does anybody have the NASB? They translate it better. What do you have, Curtis? Also, henceforth, I am he, it says in ESV. More helpfully, the NASB translates this, even from eternity, I am he. That word eternity is the same word, Hebrew word used in Psalm 2-7 for today even from eternity, okay? Um, that's why historically uh, church fathers, ancient, the ancients, medievals, etc., said that today is talking about that eternal day, if you will, or even from eternity. It's a way to speak of that. I have begotten you. Um, now, let's pick this up and see if, if the New Testament justifies my reading that this is actually a person-centered reading. The I in this verse I'm submitting to you is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the eternally begotten Son of God. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, Son, you are my Son. Today, or in that eternal day, I be, I've begotten you. Okay? Now, why do I say that? Look at Hebrews chapter 12. He, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 
I'm looking at Hebrews. What's that? I'm looking at Hebrews chapter 1. I don't know why I have 12 there. Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. If he also created the world through the Son, that means he's the eternal Son of God, right? He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his um, homoousia, his substance, his nature. Um, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? None. Who did he say it to, though? The eternal son. I will tell the decree. The Lord Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son, today I have begotten you? He said it to none of them. Who alone did he say it to? The son. It's just right there, folks. We either learn to our hermeneutics from the Bible, or we just make it up ourselves. What I'm submitting to you is the reason the church read the, some of these texts prosopologically or in the person of the Father speaking, or in the person of the Son speaking, is because Jesus and the apostles told them to read it that way. That's where they learned it. But it's not grammatical and historical. So what? You got that from modern philosophy. You didn't get that from the Bible. Just point me to the passage that says, all passages must be read literally, grammatically, and historically. Point me to the passage of Scripture that says that. The moderns argued that. The modern liberals argued that, by the way. But now it's like you're a liberal if you point out prosopological exegesis or typological exegesis where you say type, anti-type, even when the Bible tells you it should be read that way. That's somehow questioned as liberalism. Like, well, were Jesus and the apostles liberals? Hopefully not. The answer I was given in seminary to this question when I asked was... Jesus and the apostles were given a special dispensation of the Holy Spirit by which they could interpret the Scripture in ways that were not permitted to, that were not literal, grammatical, and historical. To which I asked, does that mean that Jesus and the apostles were given a special dispensation by the Holy Spirit in which they could interpret the Scriptures in a manner we would call liberal and errant if someone else did it? Well, well, I'm not really saying that. Okay, well then what are we saying? Because if I use that exegesis, then I'm a liberal. If Jesus does it, special dispensation of the Holy Spirit. Odd. Odd, right? I can't learn. If you can't learn to read the Old Testament from Jesus, who can you learn to read it from? Is there some better teacher? Right? All right. Keaton, you had a question? Yes. Yes. Because it, it's also true of David that he's God's son, he's still Yes. It's also true. We're not suggesting that there is um, there are multiple meanings in the tech, text, but we're saying there's a thinner, if you will, and a thicker meaning. I'm not sure how else to say it to say it that way. Um, uh, type, anti type, this is a little more than that though. This is a, more, a little more than just type, Christ, I mean David, anti-type Jesus. This is, this is a little more than that. This is David speaking on behalf of the Father by the Spirit or speaking on behalf of the Son. So, so as 
Yes, when you're interpreting the Psalms, you're, you're going to, I mean, I would tell you, you're going to ask a lot of questions. This is um, the corporate people of Israel. Their king is singing. Their federal head is singing. So I need to ask questions about um, who's the federal head of God's people and how do we sing these Christianly, right? Well, the federal head of God's people is Christ. He was Christ in the old, the federal head of God's people in the Old Testament was also Christ. That's, you're either in Adam or in Christ. The Old Testament folks are Christians. If they weren't Christians, they went to hell. Bottom line. There's Christians and there's unbelievers. You say, what? Yes. The Old Testament people believed in the Christ. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. What did Jesus just say about Abraham? Who did Jesus say Abraham believed in? Him. Moses. Right? Gave up all the treasures of Egypt. For, for, he traded out for what? The reproaches of Christ. Who was Moses looking to? Okay, we could go on and on with this. Um, all right. Um, Jesus, how about this one? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. And it's they that testify about me. Yet you will not come to me that you might have life. Right? Jesus just expects them to know this. Nicodemus, what, what must he do to, you know, or, or, you know, he asks some questions. Jesus changes the subject and says, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. Nicodemus starts asking dumb questions. And Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Like, in other words, you should know. Haven't you read Ezekiel 36? That's what, when Jesus talking about born of water and the spirit, he's pointing at Ezekiel 36. And when he's talking about the spirit blowing where he wills, he's talking about Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 36, I'll pour clean water on you and put a new spirit within you, right? That's talking about the rebirth of salvation. Ezekiel 37, okay, remember John 3 and verse 8, the spirit blows where he wills. You don't know where he's coming from, where he's going, but you see his effects, if you will, right? Okay, Ezekiel 37 is about where, what? Ezekiel stands up, looks at the valley of dry bones, and he calls to the spirit, the wind, the spirit, the ruach, to come and blow upon, and all of a sudden the spirit comes and gives life to all of them. And Jesus is just pointing to Ezekiel 36 and 37. That's what he's commenting on in John 3. You miss what he's saying if you don't understand that. And Jesus is like, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel. Haven't you read Ezekiel? Right? That's what he's asking him. Pay attention, man. Pay attention. <laughs> this is, I, we, I made it clear for you all these centuries. Okay? Um, all right. Learn to read. Um, you know, read the Psalms to learn wisdom. The king teaches us to live wisely in his covenant kingdom in the face of suffering and victory. Right? with an emphasis on lament followed by joy. Here's the point I'm trying to make here. The king is the one ultimately who teaches you to sing these songs and he teaches you to suffer um, to, and rejoice. At the pattern of suffering and joy, right, or suffering and glory, if you will, the, the Psalter is laid out in a way that by the way, if you want the slides, you don't have to take pictures of them. I'd send them all to you. Just ask me. Um, if, you want, if you want to understand the Psalter, think about this. It's laid out as suffering, glory. The king, who is really the singer of the Psalms, as our federal head, that we join him in singing, the Christ is singing a Psalter, has delivered to us a Psalter that we've sung for... Um, some of which over a thousand years before he came, all of which is a collected book, let's say, for four to five hundred years before he came, we were singing as a people with a pattern that is suffering followed by glory. And then when the king comes, what's the pattern of his life? Suffering followed by glory. And so you're learning to, if you will, sing as he sings. Live as he lives. All right, or as he lived. Read them to learn to pray and sing. You want to learn how to pray? You want to learn how to sing? Read the Psalms. 
So read them to learn wisdom of how to suffer and rejoice. Trust the Lord and obey Him. Read them to learn how to pray and how to sing. If your prayer life stinks, then get up in the morning and start with the Psalter. Just open a psalm and read it and pray along. Right? And, and it, it, He'll teach you to pray. I, 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 I never pray without reading psalms. I read a psalm every time before I pray. I try to read a psalm before we pray for a meal as a family. Try to read a psalm, you know, when I come to your houses on visitations, we read a psalm before we pray. Part of that is just learning to pray, right? Praying, and, and, and it's, it's an inerrant, inspired, God-given prayer. So I know my prayer has no error when I read a psalm first. At least that part of the prayer is filled up with godly wisdom. And if <laughs> the rest of it's messy. Okay. All right. Um, Psalms is composed of five books, each ending with the benediction. Right? There are five books, and you'll see it marked down in your Psalter. Book one, book two, book three, four, book five. Each ending with a benediction. Let me give you a proposal for an overall theme. The blessed man, Psalm 1, reposes in our sovereign God and his law. And I say, I emphasize sovereign God because I'm emphasizing the notion that this is the Psalter of the king and his kingdom. He reposes in our sovereign God and his law or his word. His law means something more than the Ten Commandments here. The law, the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy um, is a reference to the law. The whole Old Testament is sometimes called the law. Right? Sometimes the Ten Commandments are called the law. The law here, I think, more generally meaning the Word of God. He reposes in his God and God and His Word, right? Which will be fully and finally administered through the Messiah. Psalm 2. So I say Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are a gateway to the Psalter. He's reposing in our sovereign God and His Word, which are fully and finally administered through the Messiah that He's looking forward to. You guys following that theme? Psalm 1, reposing in God and His Word. Bless, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So, therefore, he is like a tree, what? Planted firmly by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Right? The godly man is a fruitful man. In the ultimate sense, well, yeah, that's clearly pointing you to the Garden of Eden, isn't it? But he's a fruitful man. The wicked man, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Right? They aren't going to prosper in that great day. Right? Um... And so he's saying, the blessed man is the man who lives a fruitful life. A fruitful life defined by godliness. Not, not, not prosperity fruit in the sense that all is going to go well for you. But prosperity in the sense that you trust in the Lord and you obey his word. You find your repose, your rest, your joy in him. That's the fruitful man. Now, in some cases, we'll look at the Proverbs maybe setting you up for wisdom literature. The Proverbs, if you read the book of Proverbs, um, it's pretty much like if you're godly and wise, you're going to be prosperous. You'll do well in your job um, and your employment. You'll do well in marriage. You'll do well in life. You'll have a generally good reputation. All generally true, right? When you read the Proverbs, you think all generally true. When you read the Psalter, you think, but these godly men are suffering, (laughs) Okay? Or one of the great contrasts to the Proverbs, which is the book we'll do after the Psalter, is Job. Here's a godly man who suffers, right? Everything goes wrong for him for no good reason. It's like a nice, nuanced book right up against Psalms and Proverbs to tell you uh, in some cases, when you walk in wisdom, it looks like this in Proverbs. Generally, it's to look like this, but often, for reasons we don't know, it looks like this in Job, right? You guys follow me on that? Okay, that's why you can't build your 
your, um, your view of wisdom out of just one of the wisdom books and pretend like they don't all help you round that out. Because if you just read Proverbs, you'd be pretty certain if I do these things, I'll be prosperous. Um, so, all right. There's also a theme that structures the book, which moves from lament, suffering, to praise or glory. The front of the book is largely lament, and the grand benediction of the book is praise. The Psalter has a, a benediction that goes from Psalm 146, I think, to Psalm 150. Like, so there's like multiple psalms that are all the benediction for the whole thing. All praise. You guys remember those like, bang your cymbals together and, right? You guys remember all that? Okay, praise the Lord, etc. All right. So the books. There are five books of the psalms, and I feel like I'm not going to do any justice because I have no time to really read them. So we'll go over the five books of the Psalter next week. So this is taking me now one week longer than I expected. Um, so we'll go over them. I ripped off these titles from Robert Godfrey, incidentally. Um, I put that at the bottom. I'm going to tell you guys, remember, if you ever get my slides, there's about multiple pages at the front end that basically give a general disclaimer. Any good ideas I have come from guys smarter than me. Here's their books that I read that all of them come from. I'm not going to be busy footnoting everything because it's not an academic paper. But these titles here come from Bob Godfrey, um, and we can look at them next week. Do we have any questions so far this morning? Anybody? I'm trying to be more respectful of the clock. Yes, sir? Yes, and there's, they used to be posted on the website and re-updated, but we haven't, with the new website being built, we haven't done that yet. Um, so I need to put them up. But yes, I can send them to you. We, are we had to build a new website because one psalm I preached, I don't remember what psalm it was, 94? I don't remember. Anyways, one psalm I preached went nuts, just like a month before COVID. Like, nuts. Like 20 million downloads. And, um, and then we started getting hacked like crazy, and our website was a mess for a year and a half. So we finally had to go to a professional external company to host everything that can protect us from that. Um, and during COVID, we had 500,000 by 10 or 11 in the morning every Sunday morning. And so we were like, dang, we can't keep up with this. It was a big problem. So we went out to external stuff, but it was a mess for a while. Um, probably after it was a mess for so long, we probably have three listeners now. So it shouldn't be a problem anymore. <laughs> all right. Um, any, any questions at all? Yes, sir. Prosopological. It's a big, big word. Is that what Craig Carter was writing about? I don't know if Craig Carter writes about it. My assumption would be he's aware of it. Craig Carter's written a book recently on interpret. I think it was called Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition or something like that. Um, he probably addresses it in there, but I don't remember. He might address it in there, but I'm not sure. I mean, it, he would assume that that's the right way to interpret Scripture. So I don't, you guys may not know this, but in the modern era, most of the old way of reading Scripture that you find from the 2nd century through the 16th century, um, and it started changing in the 16th century, but really started switching in the 17th, late, late 17th, especially the 18th century, um, it, we, we just don't read it the way they, dis, they did. Um, we decided somewhere along the 18th century, especially that the first 17th centuries of the church didn't know how to read the Bible. Thank God we came along, right? And, um, and we've kind of made all sorts of messes ever since. So, I'm not saying modern exegetes do everything wrong. I'm saying they do things insufficiently. So, Grammatical, historical, literal hermeneutics, good. Not sufficient. Necessary, not sufficient. So you do need to follow grammar, right? You guys understand the distinction there, okay? You, you understand the distinction between necessary and sufficient? Need to do it. It's not enough. Um, all right. 
Any questions? So next week what we'll do is we'll look at the five books of the Psalms. We're not going to read um, every Psalm. We're, we're really going to read the last, um, pretty much the last chapter or the last Psalm, really chapter, the last Psalm of every book. And look at that Psalm and its benediction and show how the story goes across um, the Psalter and try to emphasize uh, what's being taught or sung across this whole book. So, um, all right, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the grace that we've been shown in your Son, for the privilege that we have to receive your word, to sing it with your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that we're your people in Him. We pray that we would learn to pray and sing as we're taught in the Psalter, that you would be honored in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.